uphold us and sustain us as we do the whole of the universe. And we acknowledge that and simply return a portion of what you have given to us to you and ask you that you would bless and prosper us, that you would multiply its influence so that the gospel might sound forth in this place, in this county, in this nation, and even in the uttermost parts of the world. God, would you glorify yourself by doing exceeding abundantly above all we dare to ask or could possibly imagine. Do it again so that you might be invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. This is um, a communion Sunday, and while uh, I always attempt to do a brief exposition of the significance of the Lord's Supper at the time that we receive this sacrament, It occurred to me the other day, I don't think I've ever preached a communion sermon here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. So I want us to look at this passage, which uh, is the occasion of Jesus instituting what we call the Lord's Supper. So Matthew 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us pray together. Lord, you've given us your word, and and each week, week by week, we We thank you for your word, but we pray for the presence of your spirit because we need your spirit, not only so that we might understand your word, but so that your word might be applied to our hearts and woven and worked into the fabric 
of our being so that your word and your spirit might dislodge disorder and might overcome confusion and might root out sin and unbelief. So, Lord Jesus, come by the power of your spirit in conjunction with your word. Work in our lives this day, we pray. In your name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you, uh, as I'm looking around the room, some of you know the name, you recognize the name Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a minister in our denomination. Actually, he was a minister in what was the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. Sometimes Presbyterians are referred to as the split peas. There's a bunch of them around, and I'm so glad the day is coming when they'll quit splitting and be completely united, not only with one another, but with Baptists and Lutherans and, you know, the whole deal. But Francis Schaeffer was a minister in our denomination and uh, was actually a missionary in Europe after the Second World War and established a ministry, many of you may know of it, uh, Labri, which in the French means the shelter. Um, and Francis Schaeffer was many things. He was, uh, he was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was an apologist, meaning he was one who sought to uh, defend the faith, sought to, uh, as he would put it, uh, give honest answers to honest questions. But above everything else, and I think biographers of Schaefer would uh, agree with this. In fact, they're the ones who said it first. Uh, above everything else, Schaefer was an evangelist. Uh, he wanted people to understand the truth and the application of the truth of the gospel to all of life. And that's why he was so patient and why he listened and why he sought to give honest answers to honest questions because he cared that people have reasons for believing what they believe. And there's a phrase that, that was a kind of a recurring phrase in Schaeffer's lectures and then in his books. And, and it's a phrase that is kind of like a barnacle on the hull of a ship is sort of stuck to my gray matter. And, uh, and I can't get away from it. And it's a phrase among many other phrase, phrases that are sort of memorable. It's this phrase that Schaeffer used to use, the time and space continuum. The time and space continuum. And he would use that phrase because he wanted people to understand that Christianity is firmly rooted in the time and space continuum. That Christianity is not a myth and it's not a fairy tale and it's not something fabricated out of the imagination of some philosopher, theologian, mystic, palm reader, whatever. But the stuff of Christianity is rooted in this time and space continuum. That's the world in which we live. We live in time and we live in space. The moments go by and we occupy space. And that's the world in which we live. Sometimes I like to say in thinking about Schaeffer's 
time-space continuum that if you were to get on H.G. Wells' time machine, you remember that movie, The, the Time Machine? Remember H.G. Wells' The Time Machine? If you were to get on the time machine and you were to go backwards, you'd bump into this stuff. You'd run into this stuff. You'd run into Matthew 26. Our kids used to watch these little videos when they were, when they were young children, and, and that was sort of the, the, the way these Bible stories were conveyed. There was a character who lived in the 20th century, but he'd be transported back in real time and space to the days of Moses or the days of Joshua or the days of Elijah. Schaefer had an enormous burden to convey to people that if you could retrace your steps historically and go back far enough, you'd end up here. And you could go beyond here, Matthew 26, to Matthew 1 and 2. And you could go beyond Matthew 1 and 2 to Malachi. And you could go from Malachi on back through Elijah and Elisha and and Isaiah and all the prophets, David and back to Moses and back to the foundation of the world, to the creation, to the days of the creation. And Schaefer used to love to say, if you had been there at the empty tomb, if you had been there when the stone was rolled away and the angels appeared and you had a camera, you could have taken a picture of it. You could have taken a picture of it. A picture of the stone, a picture of the angels, a picture of the befuddled mystified disciples. There isn't anything in all of what we do as Christians that more roots us and connects us to the time-space continuum than the sacrament of Holy Communion. As much or more than anything else, this sacrament connects us to this time-space continuum that we're talking. This thing before us connects us to realities that are material, that are physical, that have to do with the sequence of events, that have to do with time and space. Michael Wilkins is a professor at a seminary out in California, Talbot Seminary, and he wrote a commentary on Matthew, and he said, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper compels us to look in six different directions. We don't have time for six. We'll just take four. We'll just take four of them. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper compels us to look in at least six different directions, and we'll look at four. It compels us to look backwards in time and space. It compels us to look up in the present moment. It compels us to look out, out away from us, out into the world. And it compels us to look ahead. It compels us to look forward. You see, at every point, we are rooted in physical, material, time and space realities. Backwards first. We're backwards people here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. We're not contemporary people. We're we're not people who think the newer, the better. We actually are people who think the older, the better. I see some folks, some 
older folks looking at each other and smiling at each other. They like that. The older, the better. You look back. You look back because of the sacrament of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, as this passage indicates, was instituted in the midst of the celebration of Passover. As the celebration of Passover developed across the centuries, the celebration that finds its roots in Exodus chapter 12, it's very interesting that that celebration ends up involving three different kinds of food, three different foods. Unleavened bread, you remember, unleavened bread, bread that was not made with yeast, which was reflective of the haste with which the nation Israel had to leave Egypt. It's symbolic of the haste with which the people had to leave Egypt. And then they ate bitter herbs, reminding them of their bitter servitude in Egypt. And then they ate, of course, the lamb, the lamb or the goat that was prescribed in Exodus chapter 12. You remember last week we looked at Exodus chapter 12 along with Leviticus 16 and we talked about these ideas of substitution and the idea, I don't know that I used the word, but the idea of imputation that the sins of the people are transferred away from the people on the day of atonement. They're confessed through the high priest to the head of the goat and the goat then is led out away from the presence of God, out from the midst of the assembly of the people. You put those two ideas together, you have a picture of what the death of Christ is. A substitute who bears the sins of the people. And all of that is rooted in Exodus 12, what we looked at last week. Three foods. And then there were four cups, actually. Four cups that were consumed during the Passover celebration. The cup of benediction or the initial cup of of blessing and then another cup that was enjoyed before the meal and then there was another cup of blessing after the meal and then there was a cup that followed the singing of the psalms singing the psalms psalms 113 to 118 you ought to go read those psalms and you ought to pay particular attention to the end of psalm 118 which is the psalm that contains these words This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. The disciples probably sang that hymn as they walked with Jesus from this Last Supper to the Mount of Olives where he would be betrayed. This is the day. What day? The day he would be betrayed. The day he would be arraigned. The day that he would be bound and carried to the horns of the altar and sacrificed as a substitute for the sins of his people. Three foods, four cups. Three plus four is seven. What an interesting number to emerge from the celebration of the Passover. Completion, perfection, sufficiency, 
everything done, nothing to be added. And it's in that setting, the three foods, the four cups, that Jesus institutes this meal that is to be observed by his disciples. There is this reference to the Passover, as we've said, the Passover which prescribed either a lamb or a goat to be taken into the home, you remember, to be cared for for four days and then on the fourth day to be slaughtered. And you remember that the blood from that sacrifice was to be painted across the doorposts and the lintel of every house in Israel so that when the angel of death passed over the whole of Egypt, those who were under the blood would be safe from judgment and death. Under the blood. The lamb, the goat. You know, the the symbolism that you find in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, as it points ahead to the coming of Christ and Christ's fulfilling all of this, the symbolism is like a rainbow. Or maybe, you know, a rainbow. Lots of colors, one rainbow. They all sort of bleed into each other, and yet you can see the distinct colors. Or it's like the layers of an onion. You just, you know, you just keep peeling stuff away, and, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. What is the Passover pointing to? Well, Jesus is the lamb, but Jesus is also the goat. Jesus is the head of the household. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one who makes the sacrifice, who is the sacrifice. Jesus is not only the lamb and the goat and the high priest who makes the sacrifice, but he is himself the sacrifice who is offered in the midst of the temple, and he is himself the temple. Can I just sort of work this out kind of parenthetically. This is why I got real theological issues with people who want to rebuild the temple. Jesus is the temple within which the sacrifice is offered. He is the high priest in the temple himself who offers the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. He is the whole rainbow, the whole onion As I was reading this last week, reading these commentators who are a whole lot smarter than I am, who see things that I'll never see, don't ever think that preachers are smart. Smart preachers read. They don't think things up themselves. They find out stuff from people who are smarter than they are. And I was reading Leon Morris' commentary on Matthew this last week. And Leon Morris made this really incredibly powerful insight. Basically said, you know, there are three places in addition to this Exodus 12 thing where blood is a big deal and where it gets painted on the doorposts and the lintels. There are three other very significant places where blood plays a prominent role. Three places, in fact, where blood is sprinkled. The first of them is in Exodus 24. And I'll just encourage you to read the passage and read it slowly and carefully because in that passage there is the drama of the sealing of the covenant between God and his people. And in this text where Jesus says, this cup 
is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. He's hearkening back to Exodus 24, where God says, this is the blood of the covenant that seals the covenant between me and my people. And the sequence in Exodus 24 is that Moses reads the law. He reads the whole of the law that he's received from God. And the people say, this is staggering. The people say, everything the Lord has said, we will do. What insanity is that? What presumption? What arrogance? What foolishness? And then Moses goes on after he has read the law and the people have said, we will do the law. Moses does the necessary thing. He assigns the young men in Israel to slaughter oxen. You get what's going on here? Not only are you people presumptuous, you're stupid. You're foolish. You're naive. You're crazy. You're insane. Remember our confession of sin? The insane folly of our rebellion. Moses reads the law. The people say, we'll do it. And then Moses builds an altar and he assigns the young men to slaughter oxen and they bring the blood and half of the blood is thrown against the altar, the place where an imperfect man has made a sacrifice in the presence of a holy God. And then the remaining blood is sprinkled on the people. And you know when that happens? It happens after Moses reads the law a second time. It's like, it's like God through Moses is saying, I'm going to give you another chance here. I've received the law. I've read the law. You said you're going to do it. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the blood. And then he reads the law again. Would you people please come to your senses and realize that you are incapable of keeping this law? But the people say the same thing. All the Lord has said we will do. And Moses then sprinkles the blood of the substitute upon the people so that the blood comes between the people and the holy God who sees them. That's the way it is, folks. That's the calculus of Christianity. That's the math. That's how it works. I said to you before the confession of sin, leave it all out there. All the pretense, all the self-righteousness, all the learning, all the doing, all of the things you feel or think you feel that make you feel like your spirit, leave it all out there. It's naive. It's foolish. It's silly to come into the presence of a holy God and say, I can do the law. Can't. But you know, there are two other places where blood is sprinkled. And this is where Leon Morris' insight was just stunning. Leviticus 14, the cleansing of lepers. And Leviticus 8, the consecration of priests to the service of God. Now, come on, I got to think. I got to think. 
that somebody in Israel connected those dots. And I got to think that one of the disciples or all of the disciples saw what was being said. That the three occasions when blood is sprinkled on the people, it's sprinkled on lepers, it's sprinkled on priests, and it's sprinkled over the whole of the nation. And you tie all of that together and you hear Jesus saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which isn't sprinkled, but is poured out. Not a sprinkling, but a flood, a deluge of blood. This is my blood of the covenant, greater blood, greater covenant, more sufficient, more broad. Poured out upon whom? Lepers. Who by that blood are made clean and who by that blood are consecrated as priests. Not just a tribe in Israel, a tribe from one nation, but a whole nation of priests, a whole kingdom of priests from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Young, old, men, women. Peter reminds us. He takes up this language in his first letter. And reminds us that we're a holy nation and we all together are a royal priesthood. Lepers who have been cleansed. Priests who all together have been consecrated and set apart by that same blood for the service of Christ. A whole nation of us from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. That gets me. That's the gospel. For me, a leper, redeemed, restored, and consecrated to the service of Almighty God, the King of the Kings, along with all who trusted in Him. People used to say that it was a great honor to have served on the staff of Winston Churchill during the Second World War. It was a badge. It was a prize. J.I. Packer talks about it in his book, Knowing God. But to be a servant, a priest of the King of Kings, consecrated by him through the shed blood of his son to serve in his kingdom. So there's a look back but there's another look. I guess I've got to do this fast, don't I? There's another look. We don't just look back. We look up. We look back to all of this color and diversity and all of this incredible symbolism that we see in the Passover and these other rites throughout Old Testament Israel. But we don't just look back. We also look up. We look up. Look up. Where do we look? Well, we look up beyond the limits of the physical and material world to a risen, reigning Jesus Christ who is still fully God and fully man. I don't know how this works. I don't get this. But Jesus is somewhere. Jesus, the risen God-man, 
is somewhere. I don't understand that. After his resurrection, he could kind of move through doors. You know, he could do Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of stuff and just appear. He wasn't a ghost. That's why he said to the disciples, touch my hand. See, it's me. Put your hand in my side. See, it's me. But there was something about his resurrection body that transcended the limits of of time and space. And yet, it was real and physical. And when we look up, we look up to a risen and reigning Christ who is someplace. I don't know quite where. I know that he's here by his spirit. But he is not here physically. He is someplace physically. Somehow. There's a couple of theologians in the room. I'll, I'll point them out to you after the service is over. And you can go ask them to explain it to you. Because I can't figure it out. But when we look up, this is my point. When we look up, we look up to a real Savior who has vanquished sin and death, who is alive, who is still the incarnate, glorified to be sure, God-man. And he communes with his church by his spirit. We are connected to Jesus Christ, the living, risen, reigning king of glory by his spirit. John chapter 6, Jesus uses the imagery of his body and his blood and says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. He's using a figure of speech. He's not suggesting that in any sense we consume the literal physical body and blood of Jesus. But what he is doing is reinforcing for us the idea that our life today, your life today, your well-being today, is served by the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus mediates his own risen and glorious person to his people. He is the head. We are the body. We are connected to him vitally in union with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory. The framers of the Westminster Standards got this. They understood this. This is an arresting question and answer. I encourage you to reflect on it and think about it. It's question number 154 of the larger catechism. Listen to the question. What are the outward means? Listen to this. This is stunning. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us, communicates. What happens when something is communicated? It passes from one person to another, doesn't it? You're, you're listening to words. I mean, maybe you don't like them. Maybe you're not interested. But there's communication that's going on here. Something is being passed. This is one of the marvels and beauties of what it is to be a person, to be a human being. That something can be conceived in the mind. It can be formed and shaped. And language then can be used to convey it from one person to another. The confession, the larger catechism, is communicating to us this idea that Christ communicates things to his people. Really and truly. It's not an idea. It is a real and true communication. What is being communicated? 
Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. What are the benefits of his mediation? What does Christ possess that you need? What are the benefits of his work as the high priest at the right hand of the Father? What does he have that you need that you need for him to communicate to you? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I need. I need reassurance that I'm loved. In the midst of this crazy world where everything is conditional, I need to know that I'm loved. I need my conscience to hear that I'm forgiven, that that blood that was shed really does make a difference for my conscience. I need to know, not only in my head in some sort of theological formulation, but in my experience, I need to know that the power of Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, the power that raised Christ from the dead is being directed toward me. And that 10 years from now, by the grace of God, I will be a different person just as I trust I'm somewhat different from the person I was 10 years ago. We celebrated our 30th anniversary this last week, 30 years. I hope to God that I am not the same person that I was 30 years ago. I need that. I need to know that I'm loved. I need to know that I'm accepted. I need to know that I'm cleansed. I need to know that I'm forgiven. I need to know that I'm being changed. Those are the benefits that Christ, my great high priest, has. And how are those communicated to us? The answer to the question is this. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church. The benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, but especially the word and the sacraments and prayer. This table with these ordinary elements are wonderfully, providentially, and to be sure, mysteriously, a means by which when received in faith, imperfect, partial to be sure, but when received in faith are a means by which Christ communicates himself and all of his benefits to his people. I had a buddy who was planning a church out in Seattle, Washington. He had a lot of non-Christians who were coming to his church, and on one Sunday morning, he was preaching about this very thing. And this guy who had only come for two or three weeks, he had met with him, he knew that he wasn't a Christian. He heard these things being communicated from the back of the room, and before he could finish his sermon, the guy got up out of his chair and ran down to the table and said, Give it to me! Give it to me. There's a part of me that says, how come we don't do this every week? If that's what this is, we should do it every week. We should do it every day. Let the elders deal with that. So we look back and we look up, but we also look out. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six as he rehearses the institution of the Supper of the Lord, as he comes to the conclusion, says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death. Here it is, rooted in the Passover. This is my blood of the covenant. 
Here it is, bread and a cup lifted right out of the Passover, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We look up to him, deriving our life from him, pleading and imploring him that he would use these means to strengthen our faith. But it isn't just about us, folks. It's about every race and nation and tribe and tongue. It's about people out there. And every time we do this, this is a sermon communicating truth not only to us, but communicating truth to the world out there. There is a place of safety for people who know they need a place of safety. There's a place of forgiveness. There's a place of freedom. There's a place where the screaming conscience can be silenced and stilled. There's a place of hope, and that place is Jesus Christ, whose death is preached in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. It's proclaimed. It's a great story. I think I heard this story from Sinclair Ferguson, who talks about this old Scottish preacher who in the old Scottish fashion served communion infrequently but at tables that were set up in the midst of the church and people would come and sit at the tables. And every time at communion there was this woman, this, this old woman, and every time they had communion she would come and sit at the table but she wouldn't take the elements. She wasn't sure she had confessed well enough. She wasn't sure that she had believed well enough. She wasn't sure that she had repented well enough. She wasn't sure that she had done the stuff that you need to do in order to come and to take communion. And finally, one Sunday at communion, the old pastor expressed his frustration with his parishioner whose heart he knew, whose godliness he knew, who knew that her conscience was troubled. The cup came to her. She passed it by. He took it and he thrust it into her hands and he said, Take it. It's for sinners. Take it. It's for sinners. Not people who've believed well enough, cleaned themselves up well enough, repented well enough, but people who know their utter destitution. Take it. It's for sinners. And we proclaim that to a world that needs a Savior. And then lastly, and this one is stunning, we look back, we look up, we look out, we also look ahead. We look forward. And we look forward to the return of Christ. And here's this stunning thing that Jesus says in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's telling us, some of you have heard me say this. I may have mentioned it in a sermon. He's telling us two things. He's telling us that the day is going to come when we will drink not, not an old Merlot, not an old Bordeaux, but we will drink a new wine in the new heaven and the new earth, seated at table with Jesus. The day is coming when we will enjoy the full blessing of the finished work of Christ. But here's the other thing. The other thing, Jesus says that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until you are there 
to drink it with Him. Jesus, the lover of your souls, will not allow Himself to enjoy the fullness of the Father's kingdom until you are there to enjoy it with Him. He will defer His own gratification, His own happiness, His own joy until those whom He loves are seated at table with Him so that their deep longings will be gratified. He won't drink until you are there to drink with him. So what is this about? It's about stuff rooted in the past. It's about our moment-by-moment dependence upon Christ. It's about heralding the death of Christ as a place of safety, the blood on the doorposts and the lintels where sinners can come and find security. And it's about the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and eating and drinking recklessly, delightfully, with deep satisfaction and gratification at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't wait. Let's pray together. Lord, please, we're slow. We're slow to understand. We're slow to see. But please, by your grace, by your might, by your power, Come to us and at this table meet with us. Fill our hearts with joy. Give us a taste of the glories to come. Reassure your people that they are safe in your presence, we pray. In your name, amen. Let me invite you to sing with me. We'll sing just the first verse as we prepare for communion. We'll sing just the first verse of How Firm a Foundation, hymn number 94. Would you please stand with me as we sing together?